Well, it's good to have you here today. Um, I was really happy for all of you Dodger fans. I thought my counseling load was going to go up when they were down so much, but it's okay. Peace be still. Last night, the Dodgers won, because I'm sure, you know, God has favorites of teams. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians, and so you can go ahead and open your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there's some guys that have Bibles. You can raise your hands, and they'll bring you one. But we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 2 today. We're going to be in verse 12. But let me just, I want to just dive into this. When I was kind of preparing to talk this through, I was doing some different research on some stuff, and... and uh, and you're going to catch the connection here in just a little bit, but I, I, I read a study, a medical study. Yeah, I know. You ready for it? Why do people avoid medical care? Yeah. Now, I read it. There you, again, you're going to see the connection here in just a little bit. But in this study, one of the things they found were, were they found th- three different things or reasons why people don't seek medical care. The first one that they found, which is kind of the biggest one, is it's just a hassle and it costs too much. That's why people avoid medical care. But interestingly, the thing they found were two other things that were actually bigger in deciding whether or not it's worth it to do it. Now, the first reason that people don't seek medical care that they found out that actually drives whether or not to go through the hassle or not is that most people think it'll just go away. And so in the back of their head, they're asking the question, is it worth all the hassles? Is it worth all the money? Because at the end of the day, it's just going to go away. And you know this. Sometimes you have these aches and the pains, and they just kind of go away. But then we also know we've heard stories where those aches and those pains we should have paid attention to. The other reason that they found it out, and I love this, and I'm just going to put it in our vernacular, because it was, it, here's, here's what they called it. They called it unfavorable evaluations of seeking medical care, which just, I think at the bottom line is that people just don't like doctors. <laughs> now... At first, I thought, like, who doesn't like a doctor? They're awesome, but okay, so just just go with me for a second. I hate the dentist. I'm one of those people. Now, it's not because I don't like people in, well, I don't really like people in my mouth, but that's really not it. I hate the dentist because when you go in there, they make you feel terrible about yourself. (laughs) True. Like the one question they always will say to me is they'll say this. They'll go, Mr. Nicewonga, we've noticed that you do a really good job brushing, but you don't. And it feels like that light in your eyes. It's like Gestapo. Mr. Von Nuswanga, why haven't you been flossing your teeth? You know, <laughs> no, I should be flossing my teeth. But really, you just, I think that's a lot of it. There's an embarrassment. There's a shame if I go in there. Now, here's the dot, because I'm (laughs) going to connect it for us. It started to cause me to think, why don't people seek spiritual or soul care? Now, I think this question is way more important than even your physical medical care. Now, I think a lot of the reasons we don't do it is, in some ways, we think it's a hassle, it's too costly, but I really also think at the end of it, we think it'll just go away, don't we? We think at the end of the day, it's just going to go away, so just pretend like it's just not there, let's just not deal with it, that would be one way of dealing with it, or we're too ashamed and we don't want to actually deal with whatever it is that we need to deal with. But the one thing that we know from Scripture, when you look at like Hebrews 12, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's two things that come out of it. Number one, God is going to not allow you to not deal with it. 
If you are truly somebody that is loved by Jesus Christ, you can be assured that God is going to love you enough that eventually you're going to deal with it. And the second thing we learn is that the longer that we take to deal with it, the worse it gets and the greater the cost is. And not only that, but oftentimes by not dealing with it, we create new problems that then cause new problems that then cause new problems. Now, in Paul's life, we're going to kind of see this in 2 Corinthians. And just keep your, keep your finger where you are in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 2. And go to 2 Corinthians 1 and look at verse 8. You can see this with Paul. He actually experienced this very reality. Now, watch this in verse 8. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. <clears throat> For we were so utterly, look at that word, beyond burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. In other words, things were not good. Now, here's what Paul's going to learn, though. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he'll deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. God, the great physician, that's what he's called inside of scripture, looked into Paul's life, and as much as Paul didn't realize it at the time, he didn't. Now, here's going to become a key word to where we're going today. He didn't really trust God like he thought. At the core of all of our problems and everything that we ever go through is this big question, do I trust God? If I trust God, I will go with him and I will follow and I'll do whatever he asks. If I don't trust God, I'm going to continue to get into this melee of pretending that whatever it is will go away because I don't want to deal with it because I don't trust God that whatever it is is worth dealing with. And then I get into this pattern now of not dealing with the very thing that I need to deal with and it just gets worse. But Paul not only learned the trust, but look at verse 10. He learned also that his problem wasn't that he didn't trust God, but he also didn't set his hope on the right things. Now, what he was doing in this particular section is he's just revving it up and he's kind of showing us, this is where I'm going to go with the whole letter. Everything that I'm going to teach you about in 2 Corinthians is going to come back to this concept in which we're going to get after this question of, do I really trust God and is my hope really set on the right things? And what he's going to do today, now just go with me for a second. You're just going to have to go with me for a little bit until you understand it. He's going to explain the Christian life as a death march. Can you imagine Paul standing in front of you and says, who wants to follow Jesus? Because if you choose to follow Jesus right now, you can go on the death march with him. But he's going to talk about this death march to bring us to this beautiful thing. And here's the word I want you to remember. Surrender. And in bringing us to surrender, bringing to this point where we die, he's even going to talk about in this death march, we are actually going to find life like we've never known. And in finding that life like we've never known, we are going to be a source of life to all kinds of people. But we have to enter into this death march, and you're going to have to trust me for right now, of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. So with all of you sitting out there today, are you not excited that we're about ready to go on a death march together? If you are, say Amen. All right, now, we're going to find out what does this death march mean, number one, 
And then we're going to ask this question, why would anyone ever want to do it? Now, in verse 12, he's going to start us off. Okay, so here's where we're going. We're going to ask the question, what is this death march? And he says this, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them, and he says, I went on to Macedonia. Now, to understand this idea of a death march, the thing you can't forget is that Paul, at this point in his life, if you remember from two weeks ago, he was heartbroken. He was a man that was completely broken. He had come into this town. He had loved on them. He left and found out that they had totally rejected him. He made an unannounced visit back to visit them. And when he came back to visit them, these people that were the leaders at the time totally rejected him and no one stuck up for him. And he had to leave town so that he didn't destroy his relationship with them, their relationship together, and their relationship to God. He had to slink in this interesting way out of town to be able to protect them. He then wrote this tearful letter to them, begging them, do you not understand my love for you? And again, if you've ever been at this point before of heartbroken where you're, you're maybe a parent who's crying out to your child to understand your love for them and not to go down that certain path, this is where Paul was. He was a heartbroken man, and now we're starting to kind of catch the rhythm of everything he's talked about starting in chapter 1, verse 3. He's entering into this like thing that's like a death march. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, a guy looked at me and said, do you understand in coming to know Jesus, your life is about ready to get incredible. Within two weeks, it stunk. I began to share my faith with my friends. The first guy, man, and I thought it was really work, a guy named Dewey, he still to this day calls it the Sermon on the Loft because I preached at him my first day I knew Jesus on this loft. And he came to know Jesus, and I'm like, yes. Life is wonderful. But friend by friend by friend that I went to rejected Jesus. And not only did they reject Jesus, they began to reject me. I went back to this guy and I said, I thought you told me this Christian life was going to be like wonderful and great. And he goes, it is. It's wonderful. It's great. And I said, then why in the world do I feel like now I'm losing everything? He didn't have an answer for me, and that's why we're going to look at this today. Paul, on one level, as he's walking this through, he does feel like he's he's losing everything. So in the midst of all of this and sending that letter to them, he then sent Titus later on to find out how they were doing. And the thing we find out from him sending Titus is he was sitting on pins and needles as he waited in Troas to kind of find out the news. He couldn't wait to hear the news of what was going on. And it says in there, if you look up at verse 12, that this door was open because Paul was never one to just sit around. Not only was he sitting there in this town, but he began to share Jesus with people. And just like way back in 1 Corinthians, any time it talks about a door open, in the midst of all his conflict and heartache, suddenly God begins to rescue people in Troas. But the one thing that Paul said that he couldn't get out of his mind was these people. He just loved them. He cared for them. In fact, his experience that he's going to talk about in 1128 when he talks about this, this concept of being in Troas, he says, look, apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He just, he loved them. And not only that, in 213, this is why he said my spirit was not at rest because he got to Troas expecting to find Titus and he wasn't there. His heart was aching for these people. 
So it says, when I couldn't find him there, man, I went to Macedonia. Have you ever been like this where you're just trying so desperately to figure out how to rescue somebody and you're going from place to place trying to figure out how do I care for these people? How do I reach out to them? And every time you're finding, everything is closed. And in 7.5, he came there and it says, when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. In fact, by the time you get to verse 6, he was depressed. Now, do you think when he decided to follow Jesus, he knew what he was signing up for? Now, some people say, no, 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 remember he was, you know, the dude, the one the guy, they, they came and talked to him. He told him that he was going to suffer. I don't even know if that he ever got told that he was going to suffer. But Paul, over time, is, and this is why he's telling these people, walking with Jesus is not easy. It's hard. It's a, we're going to get to in a second, a death march. Finally, in all of it, he passionately loved them. He reached out to them. And finally, he heard from Titus, which we'll get to in a few weeks. But my question is, and the question we're asking again, what is this death march and how was Paul able to do it? Well, in verse 14, watch this. Now, this is what's key to where we're going to go today. He walks through all of what he'd been going on, all the difficulty, all the heartache, and now all of a sudden he finishes after all of it. Look at those words, but thanks be to God. Okay, is anybody else going, what? What in the world? What would cause this guy that has walked this painful path over and over, which we've called the cruciform way of life, what would cause him to say this? And the answer is found in the very next two statements because he's going to come at us first from a negative way to kind of help us understand where he's at. And he's also going to come in at a positive way to help help us understand where he's coming from. Now, let's look at the negative one first. And here's what he says. Here's why he's thankful. Because he says, I'm thankful because who in Christ, look at this, always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, how is that negative? Well, this word triumphal procession is so important for us to understand. If we're going to understand the hope that Paul's calling us to in this trusting of who God is. The triumphal procession in Paul's mind and the Corinthians' mind was something very different than we have in mind, like it was a parade. Like one of the guys talked about using an illustration, like, can you imagine if the Dodgers would have lost to the Braves? First of all, Terry would have been ecstatic and bragging in front of you. That's why the Braves lost. God was protecting Terry. (laughs) But after the Braves lost, can you imagine as Dodger fans if the Braves were going on a parade, and as they're going on a parade, they got to drag the Dodgers behind them, mocking them and telling them how awful they were in this parade. This is actually what a triumphal procession is. See, at this time, the Roman generals were lauded. If you've ever been to Rome, I never have, but there's this arch called the Arch of Titus. And on this, it would show all these different examples of this Roman triumphal procession. And generals would come, and they'd be decorated in these purple robes after winning these great victories. And they would be in a chariot that was of gold and ivory. And they'd be pulled through the town by these four horses. And even the really arrogant ones would use elephants. 
And the whole time they're going through, they have a scepter with an eagle on it. And people would cheer for them. And their face was painted this orangish red to represent the god Jupiter or what the Greeks called Zeus. It was this incredible celebration. And along with them, though, came all the people that were conquered, all the dignitaries, all the generals, all the soldiers, and even oftentimes their families, and they would be drug along through that. And as they were lauding the general, they would also mock and make fun of all of these people that are the ones that have been made captive. There were senators, there were dignitaries from Rome. They would come through in all their regalia. And with them would come all the spoils of war, all of the gold and different things they collected, like their armor and their weapons and their sacred items. It was just this pomp and circumstance. There were priests that would carry this, the, the, the uh, uh, wafting along this fragrance and going all through the town. It would begin to just waft all through the parade. And other priests were sitting there banging on drums and these rhythms and telling how great this general was. Now, here's the question. Did Paul see himself as the victor or the one who'd been conquered? Was he to receive praise or was he to be mocked? Now, everything about this text, and this is very important, the context, the grammar, everything about the history, everything about it in its larger scope of of what we look at in the scriptures is that Paul was not the victor. He was the one who was actually captured. Paul is trying to build an image for him. Now, just think about this. But thanks be to God, I'm a captured prisoner. What? Not only that, but these captured prisoners, you gotta, you gotta even feel the tension of this. These captured prisoners would be drugged through town. They would be brought up to the temple of Jupiter, Zeus, and that's what you have to think about it. And then they or a, a certain segment of them would then be killed in honor to Zeus. In other words, now just grasp this. Paul's saying, I'm a captured prisoner of war, and the person that I'm captured by is the grand victor, the great victor, Jesus Christ, and I'm being drugged along And in my being drug along, I'm even coming to this point of not only death, but death even in being sacrificed to this God. What, Paul? What are you talking about? But here's the thing we have to learn. We will never learn what it means to trust God and we'll never learn what hope is until we first learn that we've been defeated. Paul saw himself, one of his favorite terms was that of a servant. And this quote that I found from Scott Haffman, I thought he put it together well. Paul's metaphor in 2.14 may be decoded as follows. As the enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ, look at this, Paul's favorite term for himself as an apostle, to death in Christ. 
Now, this is so hard, and we bristle at it. And I can even tell some of you are out there going, oh, this is stupid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm just telling you, the text of what's happening here is that if we're going to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ, Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God. We had stood against God, even if we didn't know we were enemies against him. And what we deserved was his wrath. And all of you who have come to know Jesus Christ, here is the best news in the world, whether you know it or not, you have been defeated by the good victor, Jesus. And if you've been defeated by him, you are no longer an enemy. Here's what's nutty. You are now a defeated one who is actually a son. And in the same way that you're a son or daughter, in the same way that God was not afraid to ask his son to walk a very difficult path, even a path that led to death, he is not going to be afraid to ask his adopted kids, his sons and daughters who have been conquered by Christ, to walk the same path with him. Whoo! No one shared that with me when I first came to know Jesus. but I have to deal with the fact that I'm defeated. Now, let, let me kind of explain to you using my life. Almost 25 years ago was when I came to know Jesus Christ. I, like probably some of you, was a college student that thought I had everything all figured out. I had life, I kind of had life by the tail. Everything was going great in my head, but one by one, I just watched as my life began to careen out of control. Everything that I thought I had control over, I was trying to spin those plates and keep it moving. I was trying to be all these different things because I thought in my head, that is what's going to be hope. But as the plates begin to fall and everything was falling apart, I will never forget when Tide Rogers sat down with me and started sharing the gospel with me for the first time. In the back of my head, I thought, you know, that makes sense because when I'm in control of my life, I wreck it. Now, this guy stayed with me, and I'll still never forget, I came in after a night of who knows what I put into my body, and I was injured, Uh, I was a track athlete, I'm sitting there in an ice bath, and he comes over next to me, and he goes, Todd, when are you going to be sick of slowly destroying your life and everybody else's life around you? He goes, Todd, that's why I'm trying to share with you who Jesus is. You want to know why I didn't want to come to Jesus? I didn't want to surrender and give him control. I didn't. But I remember sitting in the student union building across from another guy, and finally, for the first time ever, I understood that surrender was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Remember last week when Scott used that term, I gave up? I learned in that moment that to give up was a great thing. I gave up control. That's the biggest issue that we're talking about. I chose no longer to have control of my life. I gave up all of that control. I came to know Jesus Christ. And in some ways, I experienced what Paul experienced in Galatians 2.20. I had been crucified with Christ. It was no longer I who lived, but now it was Christ who lived in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I knew in that moment, just in a little it's what it meant that Todd needed to die. Control of his life needed to die. 
I remember even looking across at Blake and saying to him, I know exactly what this means. I can't control my life anymore. That's what it meant by when we look up there, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. This is what Paul's trying to get at. The death is not necessarily a physical death. God could call me to a physical death. But really what God is after in all of this and the thing he's just going to keep pounding on in the book of 2 Corinthians is do you trust me with control of your life? That's what I was sitting there dealing with. Do you trust me that I created the whole world and I know how it works? Do you trust me that every molecule in this world holds together by my power? Do you trust that I formed you inside of my mother's womb? I know you, Todd, better than you do. Do you trust me with your life? What's so cool about that is when we wrestle through this idea, We now start to learn then what it means out of Galatians 2.20. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, now the life I live is no longer about Todd. This life I live now is entrusting myself to Jesus. And not only am I entrusting myself to Jesus, but I love this. I'm entrusting himself. Why? Because look at the very end of it. He loved me and gave himself for me in the first place. This Jesus who adores me and loves me gave himself for me and now is looking back to us in a relationship and saying, now, give yourself to me. In the same way I gave myself to you, you give yourself to me and you trust me with your life. But that's what just egged at me. And I love what he says now. When we do this, see that little part in kind of the middle of 220? But Christ now lives in me. I remember sitting there, and again, I don't know if you remember when you first came to know Jesus, because a lot of people, man, they grow up in the church, and it's kind of hard to know. And, but I just remember sitting in the student union building at Montana State University, and I felt like I was walking off the ground like this high. Everything just felt like it had been lifted off me. Why? Why did it feel like everything had been lifted off me in that particular moment? Because for the first time in my life, it was him who was living in me. People that surrender, that come to the place of giving up control of their life, make a home for Jesus in their life. And when he comes into their life, it doesn't matter what's going on around them. It could be all falling apart, but it is right because we have Christ in me. That is nuts. Then the hard part. I thought for sure it was going to be a one-time thing. Little did I know it was going to be a daily act of surrender. (sighs) See, the one thing this Blake guy did that was so great was he eventually began to explain to me, what does it surrender look like? There's the first act in which God saves us. And and just, I want you to get this in your head. When God saves you, he saves you forever. You don't get saved, lose your faith, get saved, lose your faith. That's crazy. The Bible never teaches that. But we do have to learn all throughout our lives what is surrender. Surrender comes in all kinds of facets and forms. I don't know how many of you before you had children thought you were the best parent on the planet. I mean, I was ready to offer to give kids whoopings just for those parents. (laughs) Then I got kids, and I'm the worst parent now. 
Why? Because each phase of life, we learn new places of surrender. And as we walk through life, God is never going to allow us to escape. He's going to constantly keep this beautiful pressure on us to cause to come to the surface that question again, Todd, do you trust me here? Todd, do you trust me here? Todd, do you trust me here and here and here? Todd, do you trust me? Do you trust me with your wife? Do you trust me with your kids? Do you trust me with your job? Do you trust me with your house? Do you trust me with your community? Do you trust me with your life? Todd, do you trust me? And you know those times we totally look at Jesus and say, sorry, I don't. I will take control. And this is how I know God loves me. I always get disciplined. Jesus is never afraid to take me out to the woodshed, if you know what I'm talking about. And you know what? Praise God. Because you know those moments where Jesus finally wrestles away control of you from you? I never regret those moments. I always regret the moments that I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I appreciate that, but I'm going to hold on to this. I have control. And what Paul is trying to get at in this particular passage in 2.14 is he's saying we need to always do this. We need to stay in a place of it, is that the surrender isn't a one-time thing. And I can promise you right now, because I'm going to start asking some probing questions here in a little bit, in your life right now, just like in my life right now, there are areas that we don't want to give up. And I'm here to tell you today, let it go, let it go. That's why I'm not leading worship. Surrender. Give God control. Why, Todd? At the end of this verse, now he's going to give us the positive. Not only in that moment of surrender do I find life, but now through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him Everywhere. It's this powerful passage where he's now going to help us to understand in a very cool way what this trust begins to do. Is that as we begin to surrender, as I begin to now get down on my knees, regardless of what's going on, and I begin to surrender to God in all these different areas, whether it's I need to ask forgiveness, I need to deal with sin in my life, I need to deal with somebody who sinned against me, whatever it is, when I get down and I start surrendering to Jesus Christ, he says in there, at that moment, through us begins to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As I make Jesus home in my heart and in my life, something amazing starts to happen. Christ now is in me, and I begin to act like Christ to all of those that I encounter. Have you ever had somebody that you've encountered that acts just like Jesus did and how attractive they are in your life? I promise you, if they did, they're a person who's come to a point of surrender. The idea that he uses here is a fragrance with those, all of that wafting all throughout the streets. Paul's point was, is that when we choose to surrender, we become like that smoke. We begin to waft as Jesus everywhere. Thursday, because I'm trying to practice what I preach, my wife sent me a text and she said, ETA, estimated time of arrival. That means when you coming home, homeboy. And I wrote her back and I just figured, okay, I'm going to be honest with her. I said, I'm going to try to be home around 6 o'clock, but I'll be honest. Right now, I do not want to come home and serve you and the kids. 
I'm not saying that so that I have an excuse when I get home. I'm just telling you right now, I don't want to do that, and I need you to pray for me. Jesus and I were having a battle over surrender. I'm sitting there with Jesus going, I don't want to surrender. You don't understand what my day has been. Do you understand all those terrible, awful, evil sheep of Cornerstone? It is so hard being their shepherd. (laughs) Actually, this church is easy. Oh, but I just was sitting there with a battle. And then all of a sudden it popped back. My wife sent me just, I love you. In that moment, if you could smell Jesus through a phone, (laughs) that's what Jesus smelled like. I love you. Went home, man, and I had all kinds of new energy to be a servant, even though, you know, your kids can be punks and all those other things. But I just pray, I want my house to have the wafting of Jesus all through it. But you will never experience that until you surrender. You will never have a marriage that smells of Jesus until you surrender. You'll never have a family that just has the wafting of Jesus all through it if you don't surrender. You'll never have a workplace, and I would even say this with a church like Cornerstone, because we're going to come to a head on this at the end of it. We will never have a church that smells of Jesus until we surrender. Because our problem is, like R. Kent Hughes put it, we would much prefer riding in the chariot with the conquering general, Jesus himself, while the fragrance of our triumph wafts out to the masses and gospel tracks rain down on the fortunate. But that's not the way it happens. The gospel emanates from our weakness and our death. Now, Paul learns something in all of this. He learns that what we proclaim is not ourselves, look at this, but Jesus Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, the beauty of what happens when I surrender, I'm not surrendering to anybody other than Jesus. And the amazing thing that happens in me is when I begin to surrender to Jesus, I begin to be able to be the servant that people want me to be. I begin to be able to be the husband or the wife that God wants me to be. I begin to be able to be the pastor that this church, that they need for me. That means, like Paul's going to talk about later on in 2.17, that he says in there, in other words, I didn't have to come in and play games with you. As a surrendered man that knew who Jesus was, I didn't have to play any games with you. I wasn't a peddler of God's word, but as men, look at this, I was just sincere as a guy commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. People that are surrendered no longer have to please people. They need to please Jesus. And as they please Jesus and to surrender to him, they become the exact people that other people need. See, I think in this, he's getting at it, our weird fear of people. You don't have to fear people. He says this. Let me just kind of bring it to a close. He says, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, we just sought to smell like Jesus everywhere we went. But look at this. To one of fragrance is this woman's name, Yodia. It means a sweet aroma. To one, a sweet aroma from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, here's what's crazy. Some of you are going to hear what I'm preaching today, 
And you're going to go, that's right, that's what I want. I want to surrender. I'm sick of a life that smells of the stench of me. I'm sick of this life that I keep driving into the, into the proverbial ditch. I'm sick of the life in which I'm still angry and frustrated and annoyed at what other people have done to me. I'm a person that's done being angry at whatever our president or whoever our president is or what's going on. I'm done being frustrated with all of those things. I just want to now be this one who has surrendered to God and trusted my life to him in all these different facets, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that, because I want to find life like Jesus really talked about. And I want to be somebody that when you squash me, what comes out of me just wafts of Jesus everywhere I go. I know some of you are thinking that. I know there's others of you right now sitting there going, bro, this is stupid. I don't want that. I think there's some of you that have never bent your knee to Jesus before. You have this weird thing in the back of your head that I can't give up control. I can't in any way give up control in my life because I need to stay in control. I don't know if at the end of the day I can really trust God. I don't know if I can trust God that what he has for me is truly good. I don't know if at the end of the day I really believe that offering myself this way is really living I don't believe that even if I come to my wife and ask her for forgiveness, that she'll ask me to forgive me. I can't actually forgive what my dad did to me. There's no way I can go there. Do you understand what my parents will think? Will I lose friends? If people knew the sin that I have, it would absolutely ruin my life and it would wreck those lives around. I just can't do that. There's no possible way I can come to a point of surrender like that. And I'm so thankful that God understands that. See, if you're sitting there right now going, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to come to this point in my life. Paul explains to us who's sufficient for these things. Who can actually do it? The answer, if you're honest, is, is I can't do that. There's no way in the world. I have battled so often with forgiveness towards people. I have battled with my pride in wanting to go forgive. We talked about that last week. There, two weeks ago, there's just something about it. But you know this. When you finally go down that path of forgiveness, even if the other person doesn't respond in the way you want, it still just smells of Jesus. It just smells right. And the only way we're going to go down there, Paul says, is that we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, let me just slow down for a second. Be honest with yourself just for a second. Where right now are you struggling to surrender? Maybe you have some sin in your life you just don't want to deal with, and you know it's just plaguing you. It's right there. Maybe you don't want to come to Jesus Christ because you're so afraid of giving up your life, and the only reason that you're here right now is that somebody drug you here. But you know right now the Spirit of God is plugging away at your heart. 
I don't want to trust God with my kids, you might be thinking. I don't want to trust God with my spouse. I don't want to trust God with my friends. I don't want to trust God with anything, in fact. But before you decide not to, would you at least ask God to give you the power to do so? See, in this one weird moment, you may not know it, but I believe none of us are here by accident. I believe every one of us are here today for a purpose, and I believe the greatest purpose it is for us to be here today together is to come to a point of surrender. Tell him. Tell God that you can't surrender. Tell God that you struggle with it. Last week, we we found out Scott taught us God already knows anyways. Tell him that you're just struggling to get rid of this thing, whatever it is inside of your heart. Ask him for the power to be able to do it. Beg him to be able to do the thing that you know that you need to do. Ask him to put people around you that won't in any way ever let you get away from it until you've learned to surrender in this particular area of your life. Ask him to not let you leave here today without a commitment to go deal with whatever that area of surrender is that you have in your life today. And I'm not going to ask you to come up to the front because I want you just to deal with it right now between you and the Lord. What is it that you need to surrender? Now, here's the thing that you're going to learn, though. I'm going to get to this. There we go. If you choose to surrender, something amazing is going to happen to you. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Romans 5. In it, Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have, look at this, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been captured. And through him also, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, what do you think he's going to say after this? Now, watch this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our Remember last week I talked about forgiveness? Anytime we choose to surrender, it's a form of suffering. It's going to be painful. But look at this. Suffering produces endurance. In other words, the more that we learn ongoingly to begin to come to God and surrender, a new pattern gets created in our life. See, some of you are in the pattern of just pretend it's not here. I don't want to deal with it anyways. It'll just kind of go away. You're pressing that down and you're headed on a downward spiral in which the bottom end of this thing is going to be destruction for not only you, but for everyone around you. And Paul says, instead, go ahead and enter into that because what you're going to find is endurance, the capacity to enter into it again and again and again. And endurance produces character. What's that? We start to look like Jesus Christ. And character produces what? Hope. You know what we're lacking? Hope. If you choose today to surrender and you continue to surrender Here's what I have for you. You can expect hope. That's awesome. And so I'm going to go ahead and bring the band up if they're, if they're there. I don't even know if they're there.
But just listen to me for a second as they come up. If you need to, you can close your eyes. If you don't want to, I'm not going to tell you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you just three questions. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Do you believe in trusting him that he's always out for your good? And then my last question for you is, are you willing to surrender? Father, would you help us right now through the power of your Holy Spirit? Not because we have anything in and of ourselves. But Father, would you teach us the goodness of walking this death march towards surrender and death? Father, would we believe that it's good? Would we believe that to truly die to ourselves, to truly come to this point where we surrender to you, not just today, but every day in this ongoing way is the greatest way to find life? And that, Father, would that not just be a life that we have, but would we begin to just be a church as we learn more and more and more and more what it means to surrender? Would we then be more and more and more of a smell of Jesus in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever we go? Father, teach us what it means. Father, I say this with great trepidation. I would so much rather you corner us and bring us to a point of surrender than to let us keep going in just our willful non-surrender. So Father, whatever you have to do, man, would you bring about sweet surrender and Cornerstone Church in all of our lives so that we might find life and life like we never imagined. In your precious name we pray.